Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. friends uh, here in the U.S. and in Israel. It has been um, a very emotional week for us as, a, as our family, as we have so many friends in Israel, um, some of whom have been, uh, their, their reserve uh, units have been called up and they've been sent into Gaza and they're on the front lines. And so um, we appreciate your prayers on their behalf and uh, your continued support for them. I can tell you the Jewish community feels very alone most of the time, and they feel alone right now. Um, but we have, uh, we know that there are many believers who have, exp- have reached out to their local Jewish communities to show their support, and that means the world to them. So uh, thank you for, for your prayers. Well, I want to begin, we're talking about God's story, about his story or history, and as, as Pastor said, you cannot understand God's story without understanding Israel. The Jewish people, what, what is their role? In his short book, uh, or in his book called The Short History of England, uh, journalist Simon Jenkins writes about how he used to view his country, England, and its history. He, he writes this, he says, I have roamed England all my life. I have climbed Cornwall's cliffs, wandered Norfolk's marshes, and walked the Penine Way. I know England's cities and towns, churches and houses, for all that until recently. I did not really know England, for I was not aware of how it came to be. My England was a geographical stage set, a a backdrop for events and characters familiar from my childhood. Alfred the Great, the Norman Conquest, Magna Carta, Henry VIII's wives, Good Queen Bess, Cromwell, Gladstone, Disraeli, the Great War, Winston Churchill. Each stood as a magnificent moment in time, but they did not join up. They lacked a narrative. I can relate to Mr. Jenkins. I, I grew up in a, a wonderful Bible-preaching church. Uh, my parents took me to church every time the doors were open. Uh, I, I learned the Bible stories through the ministries of that church. But these stories often were just that. They, they were stories. They were true stories, and I never doubted the, the truthfulness of them. But they were stories that, that did not lack, or they lacked a narrative. They didn't have a, I didn't understand how they all connected, or as Mr. Jenkins would say, how they all joined up. To, to put it another way, I had a, a flannel graph level understanding of the Bible. I, I had no comprehension of the overall story that these smaller stories, these smaller vignettes were telling. And like Mr. Jenkins' understanding of England, my understanding of the Bible and of God's story lacked a narrative. I didn't understand it. Maybe you can relate that. Relate to that. You know uh, of Adam and Eve. You know Abraham and Sarah, Joseph and his coat of many colors. Uh, you know the Christmas story. You know Jesus' life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, the book of Acts, the epistles, Revelation. But some of you may say, well, I know these things, but do they have anything to do with one another? A little over a decade, I was asking some of those same questions, and I, I traveled to Israel for the first time. And going over there and experiencing the place where history, both biblical and modern, as well as prophetic, helped me to, to see that all of the biblical accounts I knew so well were not separate at all. They were one story, little parts of one great story, that they do indeed have much to do with each other because the author of the scriptures is the author of history itself, right? And, and he is the star of the show of history. So, there is a unified story. Well, what is the point of that story? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks it another way, what is the chief end of man? And what's the answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, that's something most believers, I don't care if you're a, a Reformed Calvinist Presbyterian or an Arminian Free Will Baptist, whoever you are, no Christian would deny that God's purpose for history is ultimately to bring glory to His name 
And that man's purpose, of course, whether he eats or drinks or whatever he does is what? To do all to the glory of God. We're all on the same page here. Uh, In other words, God is using history and he's using you and he's using me to bring fame to his name. We are, we are because, of, because of our lives as believers, God's name should become famous in all the earth. That is the, that is the purpose of history. Or as, as one uh, pastor puts it, uh, God's, the, the glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. He, he is making it manifest to the world. But here's the question we have to answer. We have to ask and answer. What is God's strategy for doing that? Okay, we know he's going to glorify himself, but, but what's his strategy? What, what is his, his plan as we look at the scriptures and we follow that narrative, that, that comprehensive story? What does it tell us about how God is ultimately bringing glory to himself? Well, we often think of salvation, redemption as a chief way, and, and certainly that's not far off. Uh, I, I am more convinced the longer uh, I live, I, I see how how utterly sinful I am. I am more convinced of my innate sin nature than ever before. And so God's redemption of me and a fallen world is, is a marvelous showing of his grace. It's, it's one that brings him great glory, no doubt about it. But is that the ultimate way? Is that the ultimate strategy that God is using? I, I would submit to you that it's not. Because though it powerfully demonstrates God's reversing of the curse of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, it does not account for God's dealing with the nation of Israel. Think about it. Redemption explains why God would choose the Jewish people to bring the word of God and the Messiah into the world. We can see that. But it does not explain why he promised them a land. It does not explain why he promised them an eternal kingdom. It does not explain why he would promise one day to save the entire nation of Israel. God then must have another strategy, a primary story that he is using to show his greatness throughout history. And that ultimate strategy to bring glory to his name is found in the story of his long-suffering, gracious, covenant faithfulness to that group he repeatedly calls a stiff-necked people. That's the nation of Israel. And so today I want to do a survey of the scriptures. I, I hope you are ready to flip your, your Bible's pages because we're going to go from Genesis to the very end, uh, to the Revelation as we look at God's covenant specifically with Israel and how he's bringing glory to himself. I want us to begin with looking at the, the Abrahamic covenant. How does God glorify himself in this? Really, Israel's story as a nation begins against the backdrop of Adam's failure. Adam, of course, was originally charged with ruling over the earth, but Adam gives up this right to rule. When he chooses to sin against God. Who did he give that rulership over to? Well, we find out in Matthew's account of the temptations of the Messiah Jesus. Take a look here at Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. This is the, the, the passage on the temptations uh, prior to the, really the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're breaking in here, but we see this in Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, what we have to notice is Jesus does not say, you have no right to give these things to me. No, this is a real temptation because it is essentially getting the kingdom without the cross. But for for our purposes, the the point that I want to make here is that we have to understand who is the ruler of this world at this time. Who did that rulership go over to? When Adam forfeits it, it goes to Satan. If you're not convinced yet, just consider what the rest of Scripture calls uh, Satan. In John chapter 12, verse 31, he is called the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he is the God of this age. Ephesians 2.2, 2, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Just look outside at your own community. Is there any, is there any, any doubt as to who is in control of this world system right now? Well, his rule is, is evidenced by the global evil 
that necessitated the flood. We read about in Genesis 6. And following the flood, the, the godless society that comes about. We, we know that as soon as, as, as uh, Noah and his sons and family are off the ark, we read about sin in the next breath. And when we get to Genesis 11, what do we read about? We read about this culture in the plain of, the, the, the plain of Shinar, later to be called Babylon, and what do you read about them? They are, they are this people that say, we are going to do this. We are going to do that. We, 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 we are going to build a tower that reaches to the heavens to make a name for ourselves. Do you see God in that plan at all? No, this is a godless society. Something we can probably relate to. And so it's with that backdrop that we meet a man named Abram. Now there is nothing about Abram as far as the Bible tells us, that is worthy of his calling by God. In fact, in Joshua, we read that he, he was an idol worshiper. He comes from the very place where this, where this tower is being built in Babylon. He, he's of, of Ur of the Chaldees. He's one of this, part of this godless society. Jewish tradition says, and it's, it's merely tradition, that he was actually part of a family that made idols. Whatever his background was, we know there's no merit on his part that would warrant God's calling him. And this is a significant point in understanding how God is going to glorify himself throughout the ages, throughout history. He does not use the people and things we might think would be worthy of use. It is God who will receive the glory for history, not man. And how is he going to do this with Abram, later Abraham? Well, he's going to create a new people. He's going to give them a covenant with Abram, hence the Abrahamic covenant. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 12. It's also on the screen. Genesis chapter 12 is one of the most pivotal passages in the Bible, in the entire, all of Scripture. Because it's, again, with this backdrop of the godless society post-fall, with Satan as the ruler of this world, that we see this man come on the stage. And, and more important than, than the man are the promises that God makes to him. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. By the way, that's the very land that's being disputed today, isn't it? I will, bless, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And it doesn't stop there. If it did, we'd say, okay, great. He's a, a very blessed man. No, continue on. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is why we have a missions conference, right? It is because God has in his, in his divine plan he is going to use Abram's family not only to be blessed, but to bless the nations. This covenant is confirmed in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, you can read along with me here. Verse 7, then he said to him, this is a, a re-institution uh, or a, a re repeat of the covenant. God says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down in the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. It's a lot of ites. 
But at the end of the day, what is the promise? It is that all of the promises God has made to Abraham are going to come to pass. Now notice who is making all of the promises that we just saw. It is God. Abram makes not a single commitment. In fact, consider the covenant-cutting ceremony. This is a typical uh, ancient Near East covenant ceremony where they would take animals and they would divide them and they would separate them and they would walk through the path between them, both parties. Why would they do that? Because what they're saying is, I have made promises to you and if I fail to keep them, may the same thing happen to me that has happened to these animals. It's putting their own character on the line. But notice, where is Abram during this covenant-cutting ceremony? He is sound asleep. He is sound asleep. Who walks through? It is God. Now notice that this covenant will be kept, and who is going to receive the glory in it? It is the one who makes the promises, and that is the Lord. Now notice also that God tells Abram about the future of his yet-to-be-seen offspring. This is a man who has no children yet. In verses 13 and 16, we we saw that God says that Abram's children will go to a foreign country. What country is that? We know biblically it is Egypt. They will go down into Egypt where they will be enslaved for four centuries. But he also tells Abram that his children will be returned to the land God promised them after the sin of the Amorites were complete. And of course, that's exactly what happens. We read about Israel's descent into Egypt where God uses Joseph to protect his family during a terrible famine in Israel, in the land. But we also read of a Pharaoh who does not know Joseph and who who persecutes Abram's family mercilessly, just as God said would happen. You, of course, know the story of the Exodus. Moses, with the help of Aaron, leads his people out of Egyptian bondage. Goes to the Red Sea, eventually into the wilderness. And just as God brought Abraham, think about this, just as God brought Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees to make a family, so he brings Abram's family out of Egypt to make them a nation. And so who gets the glory here? It is the Lord. Again, he is keeping these promises. In fact, we know that the knowledge of the true and living God spreads like wildfire throughout the ancient Near East. Remember, that is part of, when we talk about God's glory, it's not just that, that those who know him would praise him. It's that the world would know him, right? We see this even in the church age in which we live. We are to glorify God. Remember Jesus says that the world is to see our good deeds and what are they to do in response? To glorify him. We are to be famed to his name. And so as we look at the account of, the, of Israel coming out of Egypt, we, we see the same thing. Consider in Joshua 2, we read what Rahab, remember, Rahab is a Gentile. And Rahab is not just a Gentile, Rahab is a prostitute. And yet she is a righteous woman who will eventually be in the Davidic line. And she says this to the two spies sent out by Joshua to spy Jericho. Listen to this wonderful testimony and and be thinking about God's glory. How is his fame being spread throughout the nations at this time? Well, read this. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Why? Verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. What did did she say? For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Do you see? This isn't about Israel. This is not just about Israel. This is about God, his name being magnified. And because God's name is magnified through, through Israel, what do you see with Rahab? She becomes part of that covenant community. We, in, our, in our modern parlance in the church age, we'd say Rahab was saved. And she was saved because God's name was magnified. It was glorified through his dealing with Israel. Well, Israel would receive great blessings from this covenant. No strings attached because God promised them. And the nations would learn about the God of Israel through his dealings with this new nation. I secondly want you to consider the Mosaic Covenant. 
You can, you can hear it in the very name who this covenant is initially made with. It is Moses. He's the representative of the nation. This one at Mount Sinai. Now, this was not a replacement of this other covenant, of the Abrahamic covenant. Rather, it was supplemental. Whereas the covenant he made with Abraham was one-sided, God made all the promises, and it was unconditional, remember, no strings attached, Abraham didn't have to do anything. The Mosaic covenant was two-sided, and it was conditional. And as we'll see, God would glorify himself by putting his strength and blessing on display via Israel's obedience and their disobedience to the Mosaic covenant. We see this vividly in, in Deuteronomy 28. I'm not going to take you there just, at the, just yet. But if you look at this chapter, you will see that the first 14 verses of the Bible, they take up about that much space in your Bible, they detail God's promises of blessing to the nation of Israel if they obey him. Among these blessings are healthy children, healthy livestock, plentiful food, the defeat of their enemies, Israel's exaltation above the nations of the world. Remember, their exaltation, again, is about them being like a lighthouse. They're, they're put on display so that God's glory is magnified to the nations. We see this played out in the scriptures. Consider the conquest of the land of Canaan. After Israel crossed the Jordan into the promised land, what was the response of their enemy nations? Well, consider Joshua 5. We read this. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, so on the east side, they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, and their heart melted. There was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. They hear what God did, and they respond in fear. Just as God promised, Israel's enemies were defeated in Israel's presence because they were obedient to his commands of the Mosaic Covenant. Obedience resulted in blessing. But notice also that obedience resulted in the glorifying of God's name. Why were the Amorites and the kings of the Canaanites fearful? Well, because, and we'll quote that, because they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel. We don't read, well, they were afraid because they heard that, that the Israelis had some big nukes. Right? We, we didn't, they didn't get upset because we heard that there was this weird natural phenomena that happened where uh, you guys got into the river and it suddenly dried up. No. They understand that this is Yahweh. This is the Lord who did this. His name is being magnified. We see this, of course, too, in the life of David. When he's a young teen, the nation's being governed by King Saul, not exactly a righteous man. But God has mercy on that nation. He has his chosen man, is uh, David. And David goes out to fight the Philistines, Goliath specifically, in this representative warfare, on Israel's behalf. But he does so for a very specific purpose. If we look at that passage, we, we see this. It is not merely to have a military victory. It's not that David says, well, I, man, come on, guys. We need, to, we need to finally score against the Philistines. That's not what he says. David, as a representative of Israel, defies the Philistines in the name of Yahweh and for his glory. Look here at 1 Samuel 17, verse 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in what? In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Why? That all the earth may know that what? That there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. See David's desire? His whole motivation for coming against this Philistine army, again, not, a mili not about military victory, but about God's name, that God's name can't be profaned among the nations. Well, David defeats Goliath, you know the account. Israel then chases the Philistines, defeat them. Just as God said, their enemies would, be defeat, would flee before them. But again, notice that it's God ultimately who receives the glory through his dealings with Israel. 
Now, sadly, these incidents of obedience and blessing are few and far between in Israel's history. It's a lot easier to find instances of cursing than it is to find instances of blessing. In fact, Israel's disobedience is anticipated in the Mosaic Covenant. This is in Deuteronomy 28, verse 20. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. Remember, this is the same passage where God says, for obedience, I will bless you. 14 verses. If you look at your Bible, actually do that. Just turn to Deuteronomy 28. I want you to get a visual on this. Deuteronomy 28, if you look at this, you see verses 1 through 14, all about blessing. So, depending on your Bible, you can kind of measure it. It's pretty, pretty short. Look at Deuteronomy 15, all the way to Deuteronomy 28, 68. It's a massive passage. You think there's something God's trying to get? through to the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Blessing, yes, will, will result from obedience. But uh, he knows human nature. And he gives, him the, the, he gives Israel this passage that says, but oh, if you disobey my covenant, cursing. Unfortunately, this is what we see in Israel's history, is cursing primarily. One of the most severe consequences of Israel's national rebellion is their defeat before their enemies. This happened in in smaller ways on several occasions throughout their history, but it's most vividly seen in Israel's captivities and their eventual dispersion. Beginning in 740 BC, Assyria, the the Assyrian Empire, lays siege to the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, they're the they're we we often think of them as the wicked kingdom. They're they're only slightly more wicked than, than Judah. But they first get carried away. This was repeated when the tribes of Judah in the south were, were also taken captive. These by the Babylonians, 586 B.C. Furthermore, God not only foretold a judgment by captivity, he also promised a judgment of scattering. He says in Deuteronomy 28 that he will take the nation and he will scatter them throughout the world. These aren't just little captivities. This is scattering to the, to the nations. Did this happen? Yes, it did. If you would, turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 2. We, we read this account of Jesus and the disciples. You, you probably have, have seen this before. You know this account. We read this. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another That shall not be thrown down. The Messiah foretells the coming judgment by way of the Romans in 70 AD. You go to Israel today and you go to see the temple, you will be very disappointed. It's just an empty slab with with a Dome of the Rock shrine on it. In fact, I think more important than the Temple Mount is if you go to Israel, you go to the the southwest corner of that Temple Mount at the bottom of there, and you see these massive boulders, uh, some of them bigger than your, your vehicles in your parking lot. Why are they there? They're there as a testament to the fact that the, that the temple was destroyed. I would say for the believer, it's a testament to the, the veracity of every word Jesus spoke. He says this some 30 years, 40 years before the events of the temple. So the point is this dispersion happens. The Romans in 70 AD, they lay siege to Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, not one stone left upon another. And the Jewish people are scattered throughout the world. The diaspora that's lasted even to this day. That's why you have Jewish people in every corner of the world today. They've been scattered. And this illustrates though, the second way in which God would glorify himself through the Mosaic Covenant with Israel. Yes, in obedience, they would have great victory and the nations would see that, but even in Israel's disobedience, even in in his chastening or his judgment of Israel, his name would be magnified. The nations would know that he is Yahweh, the only true and living God. He even says this in other parts of, of Scripture we won't go to right now, where the nations will say, 
what did this people do that, that, that this happened? And the nations will say, oh, well, they, you didn't hear? They cursed Yahweh. They disobeyed Yahweh, the God of all creation. And this is what happens to a people who disobeys him. So the nations will know that it is God who removed them. But God also promises to be a little sanctuary. He says that in Ezekiel 11, a little sanctuary to the Jewish people in their captivities and in their dispersion. Wherever they go, he will still, he will still keep them. He would preserve them as a people. Why? He would, because he would keep his promises to them for the sake of his covenant with whom? With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Abrahamic covenant. Now, we would be remiss if we did not point out some further examples of how God, even in Israel's captivity, his, this time of chastening of Israel, glorified himself among the nations. Think about some of the rulers under which Israel was in captivity and their, their front row seat to what God was doing as he put his glory on display. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar? King Nebuchadnezzar is a, is a big deal in ancient history, but he comes face to face with the God of Israel when his sanity is taken from him. He loses his sanity and, and, and finally God gives it back. And what is his response? King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say, oh, I love that, that psychiatrist I went to. He helped me. No, what does he say? He says this. He says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. God's going public with his glory to this Gentile king who previ- to, to really previous to his interactions with the Jewish people, he didn't know anything about the one true God. Now he has that front row seat. We see the same with, with King Belshazzar, who sees the writing on his banquet hall. We see this with Darius the Mede, who witnesses the deliverance of, his, of the prophet Daniel from the lion's den, that, that God's fame is being spread. And this is all through the Mosaic Covenant, blessing and cursing. There's another covenant in the Scriptures, a couple more. We'll, we'll get through them here. The land covenant. We see God's glory displayed in this covenant made with the Jewish people. And in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, God reiterates his promise to the Jewish people that that land belongs to them because he gave it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But the, he makes it clear, though, in this land covenant that the enjoyment of that land is conditioned upon Israel's obedience to God. One of the most significant features of this covenant, though, is that God anticipates Israel's eventual disobedience and their subsequent removal from the land, but he also anticipates and provides for their restoration to it. Turn with me or look at the screen at Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 5. This is the land covenant. This is what God says to his people Israel. He says, Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. Who brings them back from captivity? The Lord your God. He is going to receive the glory. And he says, and he will have compassion on you. And gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. In this covenant, if we read further on, God also promises to circumcise the hearts of the Jewish people. Remember, circumcision for the Jewish nation is an outward expression of their covenant with God, that they are part of the covenant people of Israel. But this circumcising of hearts means there is a, there is a relational change, just as Pastor said in, uh, in our Sunday school time. It requires a change of heart. They will love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul. He'll turn all of the curses that once belonged to Israel on Israel's enemies. So God will glorify himself in the land covenant ultimately by showing his covenant faithfulness and his mercy to his people by returning them to the land he pledged to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, imagine this. Imagine that you're living at this time and you see this. We'll be there. We'll have front row seat. And you see 
that there is a people that gets to have their land back, the land that was promised to them some 4,000 years ago. I can't remember a promise I made to my, to my daughter to take her to McDonald's at 9 a.m. By, by, by noon. But God does not forget his promises of 4,000 years. He's going to keep them. And he will be praised because of it. Another covenant we find in the scriptures is the Davidic covenant. You may be able to discern that is made with King David. There are several components to this covenant, but for the sake of time, I just want to focus on three of them. First, God promises an eternal house or a dynasty to King David. His royal lineage will be without end. Ultimately, this points to the Messiah Jesus. Second, God promises David an eternal throne. If you go to Israel today, there is no throne of David there. Bibi Netanyahu, uh, whatever you may think of him, God bless him, he is not the king of Israel. He is the prime minister of Israel, of a, of a, of a sinful nation. But God promises David an eternal throne. How can the throne of David be said to be eternal then if we don't have it today? Well, again, it is because the one who will sit on it is himself eternal. Third, God promises David an eternal kingdom. We read about this kingdom, especially at Christmas time in Isaiah 9. You know this passage well, I'm sure. But think about it in terms of God's promise to David. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, what kind of father? Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be four years? No, no end, right? Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to, ast- to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So God will glorify himself through the Davidic covenant by keeping these eternal promises. Will King David's people be unfaithful from the point God gives this covenant to him to the end? Oh yeah, they'll be very unfaithful. Will his descendants be corrupt, at times downright evil? Yep. But God will prove himself supremely faithful against that dark backdrop of the twisted history of the Davidic family and of national Israel, and he will be glorified because of it. What about today? They say, well, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that God's glorifying himself through Israel, that he's made these covenants with them, but we live in a time called the church age. How many of you are Jewish here? Didn't think so. The church is predominantly Gentile, isn't it? We're living in this period in terms of of Israel's rejection of God and his revealed word. They have reached their lowest point. And they reached it when they rejected him nationally as their Messiah. We read of this, of course, in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John. You know it well, I'm sure, that Jesus, he, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The people who have all the revelation, who have all the covenants, who have all these promises, when the Messiah comes who's going to bring them all about, what do they do? No thanks. We don't need it. So God in his infinite wisdom and grace, this wasn't, a, uh, this wasn't an afterthought, he opens the floodgates the nations. And he says the remainder of those verses, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you have put your trust for salvation in Israel's Messiah, then you are that as many as received him. You have you have been saved by the Messiah of Israel. And if you're a Gentile believer like me, then you should be thankful that he's doing that, that he is saving Gentiles. By the way, he did that all throughout biblical history. Rahab, Ruth. Only then, if you wanted to be, if you wanted to be saved, what did you do? You became part of the covenant people of Israel. Today, I'm thankful for this. You can be saved and stay Gentile. You can still eat a cheeseburger, no problem. But as it concerns Israel, we might consider what Paul writes in Romans 11, 11. I say then, he's speaking of the Jewish people, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, what does it say? To provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to 
the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles. Do you see God's glory, his, his story, what he's doing? Even in this time, even in the church age, God is glorifying himself through Israel by saving Gentiles and making his own people jealous for what is rightfully theirs. He is still provoking them to jealousy so that he might win them and he will be glorified in their salvation. Well, Paul tells us in Romans eleven twelve 12 what the result of this will be. He says, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? In other words, if Israel's rejection of the Messiah meant the riches of salvation, the riches of Christ for you and me as Gentiles, then can you imagine how wonderful and rich it will be when their rejection ends and they put their trust in him? Man. So even in the church age, God is bringing glory to his name by saving Gentiles. Well, there's one final covenant made in the scriptures with the nation of Israel, and it's yet future. It has not been ratified yet. It is called the New Covenant. Now, we often think of the New Covenant as a, a product of the New Testament or of the church age. This is not the case. It is foretold in several different passages, Ezekiel, Isaiah, but my favorite is Jeremiah 31. Read with me here. God says this to Jeremiah. Who, you remember what Jeremiah is called? What kind of prophet? The weeping prophet. Why? Because of the judgment that's coming on his people. And yet God gives him this glimmer of hope, wonderful hope in, in Jeremiah 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Which covenant is that? Mosaic covenant we talked about. They broke that one. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What we have here is simply miraculous. The nation that endured captivities and dispersion, the rebuke of the prophets, the, the judgment of the Messiah himself, countless attempts from pogroms to the Holocaust to what's happening today in Israel under Hamas, all these attempts to annihilate them, this nation finally comes to the place of salvation. And not only a handful of them, but what? The entire nation. God will be glorified in the new covenant. Throughout God's story, he has saved individuals, countless individuals, Jews, Gentiles, but never has he saved an entire nation. This one, is, this one is one for the books. This salvation will not be some unique pronouncement where God just says, okay, the whole nation is saved. No, this is an individual salvation. Each person living at that time following the tribulation, each Jewish person genuinely understands the, the, the penalty of their sin. They are convicted of their sin and they recognize Jesus as their Messiah and they call on him whom they've pierced. And guess what? It happens to this person and this person and this person. The whole nation is saved. That should give, send a chill down your spine that the best is yet to come for the way God is going to glorify himself through Israel. Well, When will this happen? Well, you might say that's, it's wonderful that the nation of Israel will all come to saving faith in the Messiah, but what about all those covenants that he made? Are those going to happen, be fulfilled right now? What about the eternal kingdom and his promise to restore Israel and all of that? Well, this really all points to one time in history. It's the end of this story. As we're looking at the story of what God's doing, we have to understand, yes, there's a beginning. We are really in, in an intermediary period right now, the church age, for we don't know how long, but there is a definite end to the story, and it's a wonderful end. There will be a time when all of these covenants are fulfilled. When the nation of Israel receives the land they were promised, when Israel and the world will be ruled by a righteous, eternal king, when Israel will be the head and not the tail, after all, and that place and that time is called the kingdom. 
We are not living in the kingdom. I hope this is not the kingdom. We could spend hours looking at various passages, passages that speak about this coming kingdom. It's a major theme in God's story. I think it's one of the overarching themes. But today we're just going to focus on a handful of, of passages in closing here. All of them from, from the book of Zechariah. Consider this. Of Israel's salvation and, and their regathering to the land, God says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell where? In the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. You say, okay, great. What about Israel's exaltation above the nations? Remember, they are supposed to be the, the, the head and not the tail. They're supposed to be the leaders. They're supposed to be pointing people to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, consider Zechariah 8, 20 through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples, the word there is Gentiles, goyim, Gentiles or peoples, shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us continue and go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will also go. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. I'll tell you something. We just witnessed this week what happens when the nations grab the sleeve of the Jewish people. It is to abuse them, it is to murder them, it is to annihilate them. It's going to be a failed attempt. Because God tells us here that the day is coming when there's going to be an entire reversal where the nations, instead of trying to kill the Jewish people, will, try, will, will, will want to be with them. Why? Because they are the priests of God. They are the ones saying, here is the one true God. They are the religious leaders, the, I should say, the spiritual leaders of the world during the kingdom, exactly as God had originally planned. And finally, of the Messiah's rule over the world, we read in Zechariah 14. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea, and both summer and winter it shall occur, verse 9 is the key, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And that day it shall be the Lord is one, and his name one. So we have a checklist of God's covenant promises to Israel. His promise of the land, fulfilled. His promise of return to the land and blessing in it, fulfilled. His promise of an eternal dynasty and an eternal king who sits on David's eternal throne in Jerusalem, fulfilled. His promise of the national salvation of Israel, fulfilled. His promise of judgment on Israel's enemies, fulfilled. His promise of blessing flowing to the Gentiles through Israel, fulfilled. His promise of Israel being the head and not the tail, fulfilled. And who receives the honor and the glory? Israel? No. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That covenant-keeping, faithful, unchanging God. So this is the covenant, or the narrative of the Bible through the covenants. It is the story that governs and guides all that we read in Scripture. It's the story of redemption of all things. Yes, that's true. It's a story of, of, of personal, individual salvation, yes. But fundamentally, it is a story of how God has brought and will bring glory to his name by demonstrating his faithfulness to the nation of Israel and by making his name known to the nations through them. You know, every one of us... If you're a believer, you are part of that story somehow. When we talk about glory, in the Greek, that word is doxazo, bringing glory to God. It basically means that if you're, glory, if you're bringing glory to God, people change their opinion about God because of you. What role are you playing in God's story? Are you bringing glory to his name? Do people look at you and say, that makes me think differently about God? That makes me think differently about what he's doing in the world. Maybe you're someone who sees themselves in this story as one looking from the outside in. You want to know this great God who cares about you, who loves you and gave himself for you, but you don't know him. If that's you, then I want to talk to you, or Pastor Justin wants to talk to you to tell you about how you can today know him and you can become part of that story. But maybe you're a believer. Maybe you're one who has been marvelously saved. You, you have, no, you have uh, experienced the grace of God, but you don't really have a great desire to be a part of 
what God's doing in the world. You're kind of content with your own little corner of the world and your own things are going okay. If we're honest, I'm afraid that describes many of us. But God does not want us to remain spiritual babies. He calls us to grow after spiritual birth. He desires to stretch us, to mold us, to sanctify us, to make us more like his son, the Messiah, to to use us to tell others about the story he's writing and about the salvation that's made available through the Jewish people to all people. Do you want to be an active player in what God is doing? You don't have to go into vocational ministry, although I pray the Lord may call you there. Today would be an excellent day to confess our complacency and our selfishness to the Lord build our own little sandcastles, and instead to ask him to fit us for service and to show us what role he wants to use us to play in his story. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for the Jewish people. Lord, we have not only been blessed through them, blessed by them, but you have told your story of history through them. And I am convinced through reading your, your, your word that your ultimate strategy for bringing glory to your name is using this people. A rebellious people, a stiff-necked people, but a people that you are going to ultimately bring to salvation. A people to whom you are fulfilling every covenant, you will fulfill every covenant you've ever made to them. Father, cause us to examine ourselves and to see if we are in the game or sitting on the bench if we're part of the story, playing a role in your story, what you're accomplishing. Lord, use us for your glory, for your purposes. We pray these things in Jesus' name.